0: Today's sermon text will be read from Philippians, the fourth chapter, eighth and ninth verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Amen, thank you. Um, I've I've, I've often said, uh, one one of the big truths that I've learned over the years has been that whenever I am coming in contact with the Scriptures, with God's Word, and I recoil, I push back, it's because the Scriptures are doing their job. They're a mirror to my soul. They're showing me what is inside of me, the blemishes that need to be changed by God's grace. And I picked out some verses to begin with today just to, that usually cause that kind of sort of visceral, um, almost adversarial reaction within many of us. Uh, Matthew five five nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's a fun one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus talking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5. 38 and 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I once had a military guy tell me, and nothing against military guys, love you military guys and ladies, gals, had to tell me, he said that what, what that Jesus really meant in that verse was, is that when your cheek is slapped, he was serious. When your cheek is slapped, what he meant was you're probably balling up your fist so that as you turn your other cheek, you're coming in with a strong left hook. <laughs> really? That's awesome. <laughs> I haven't done a lot of study on that, but I don't think that's accurate. Um, <laughs> Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whew, that's heavy. These are so shocking that we either ignore them altogether rationalize them like crazy, like we're trying to, you know, swim, tread water, or we make them comical. We sort of add a funny dimension to them. (laughs) Who does that? But I think we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing here? What's he going for? It, does he want you just to forgive because that's just th- what you have to do as a Christian? Is that what the rules are? You've got to forgive. You can't be doing the adultery thing in your heart. You need to be a peacemaker. So when you're, a, when you're insulted, um, you don't strike back, you turn the other cheek, you forgive. I mean, this is all these verses come from the first sermon we have from Jesus in Scripture. And the first one's pretty important, I think. What is Jesus doing here? Is he just rolling out the rules of Christianity? Is that what this is? Or is there something deeper and more fundamental to this, and dare I say, beautiful? Beautiful. One of my favorite books... It was written by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Um, I can't get enough of this book. It's called The Contemplative Pastor. And it's totally shaped how I view myself and shepherding in general. And I wish, I wish to God that every other pastor on on planet Earth would read this book and go, yes, I want to do this too. I want to be what he's talking about here. And... There's a part in the book where he just flat out says this. The status quo is wrong and must be overthrown if the world is going to be livable. The status quo is wrong and it must be overthrown if the world is going to be uh, livable. What he's talking about here is how pastors and shepherds should lead the way in showing Jesus' people how to be subversive. To not just amen and become chameleons to the culture around us, but to always be that voice planted in the middle of our communities who's calling people to say, Hey, open your eyes, look around. This world as it is, is unlivable unlivable. I'm coming across article after article after article these days about our Western world that is as healthy a culture there ever has been. I know a lot of news articles talk about how obese we are and sick we are, but there has never been a culture like ours that has had the lifespan and the health and the pleasures and gratification and decadence like we have yet simultaneously. Mental illness is skyrocketing. Skyrocketing. Depression, sadness, fear, angst, it's skyrocketing. It's filling us. And he says if this status quo that is going to be over, that must be overthrown so that this world can be livable, there is another world of borning that is livable. There is another world that is beginning to come to bear, to light. It's Unseen, imperceptible, but it's there. He goes on to say that, actually. It is in existence, though not visible, its character is known. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. See, as followers of Jesus, this is something that we believe. If you didn't know this, you need to believe this, because this is what the scriptures teach. That when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, something remarkable took place a new age was begun. Something was inaugurated that will never, ever, ever come to an end. The kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, he said, is like a mustard seed. It starts off small. It's like yeast hidden in dough. It's unseen. It's imperceptible. But over time, it leavens the whole lump. It takes over. And the first fruits... Of the kingdom of God proving that there is such a thing as the kingdom of God. Proving that Jesus is real and that his word can be trusted. Proving all of that, bearing all of that out is the fact that people who have come to life in Jesus are all around us. I know that it seems that there's a lot more people who don't know the life of Jesus. But many of us in this room know the life of Jesus. And the life of Jesus was given to us because of the resurrection. Grace has flipped a switch in our lives, and we are not just better people than we used to be. We are a new kind of race or ethnic group, the scriptures say. And I really wish people, especially in our world, would study that out and think about that and discover the implications of that. We are literally, Peter said, a new kind of people, a new race, a new ethnic group. We are the new humanity that will populate not a spiritual, invisible realm where we jump from cloud to cloud for all eternity, strumming our pretty little golden harps. We are going to be people who one day, when heaven and earth meet... And Satan, and sickness, and suffering, and everything evil in this world that makes this world unlivable is done away with. We will, with our resurrected real bodies, skin, bone, blood, veins, brains, some more than others, all that, we will live in this world together without those impairments. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of that. And we are the first fruits of his first fruits. The people who have come to life in Jesus and we will live in this world, possess this world, and rule this world with Jesus. This is what eternity is going to look like. We're going to smell the air. We're going to pick flowers. We're going to eat good food and drink good drink. We're going to laugh. We're going to remember. We're going to worship. Not because that's what you do on Sunday mornings, but because the glow of the face of Yahweh himself will be so stifling and shocking and adorable. We won't be able to help ourselves but worship the living God. This is our future. This is what it looks like. And when Jesus is telling us, I want you to live in a different way as my disciples, as non-adulterers, as peacemakers, as people who cultivate um, human flourishing in whatever environment we find ourselves, we are living as the people who are going to populate that new creation. Those things are going, in my mind, from, ugh, to beautiful. I don't always think they're beautiful. Some of you might walk out of here and hurt me today, and I might not think that's beautiful. Forgiveness. But generally speaking, I find it absolutely stunning. I find it stunning. And I want the beauty of God's kingdom in my life, and in your life. This is important because I kind of, sort of, know Southern Bible Belt people. Forgive me if that's not who you are. I know we don't have just Southern Bible Belt people here. they will take that as an insult. I don't mean it as an insult. I don't mean it as a pejorative. I'm just saying I know Southern Bible Belt people. I was raised here too. And I know that some of us have been in the church so long and have been so unimpressed with The ministry that we've seen demonstrated before us that it's hard to look at God and the things of God as really beautiful. They feel like a drudge. They feel dull. They feel boring. All that. I want you to see these things as beautiful. Really beautiful. They're hard, but they're beautiful. Last week, um, I shared um, a some ideas with you by a guy named Dallas Willard. Um, He wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart, uh, one of my, man, key reference books. Um, I've worn that book absolutely out. And he talks about his own diagram for spiritual growth. And he came up with these three initials, V-I-M. Remember, our current series is Putting on Christ. We're talking about change. We're talking about becoming different kinds of people. But really underneath that is something much more beautiful. It's experiencing the possessing, glorious presence of Jesus, being shaped by it in a way that never leaves us the same. You can't talk about change without talking about Jesus intimately being within you and living through you. And so that's what we're calling this series, Putting on Christ. But we really want you to change. We want you to experience transformation in your life. I know that many of you who've been exposed to church, you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, and preachers have made promises to you, and they've oversold and they've underproduced. And there's a cynicism that's beginning to get thicker and thicker and thicker in southern Christendom. And we're beginning to disbelieve that God really will do something in our lives. I want to cut that callous off. And I want to refresh hope that every one of us can experience the renewing power of Jesus. And so I find a lot of strength and insight in Dallas Willard's words If you remember last week, I was talking about how V-I-M stands for vision, intention, and means. Vision, intention, and means. And I gave you the example of learning a language. In our culture, we have to have two years of of a foreign language in order to go to college. And so many of us take Spanish or uh, French or maybe Latin or German or Russian or something like that. And in our world, in the Western world... The vast majority of the people who learn a foreign language or who have studied a foreign language hold on to very little of what they've learned. Very little of it. Yet around the world, I see lots of teenagers nodding uh, at me. Um, Around the world, uh, you know, my mom is a French teacher. She was, she oversaw the French studies of all of Shelby County schools. She was raised in, uh, she was raised in Eastern Canada. She learned French at the same time she learned English. She's bilingual. She is very proud of me that I can count to 10 today. Very <laughs> proud of me. Um, she just is so just makes her face glow that I can count to 10 sometimes. Um, yet around the world, there are people who are learning English at phenomenal rates. Phenomenal rates. Why is that? Are they smarter than us? They would say yes. I don't think so. They have something that we, many of us, don't have, and that's vision. They have a vision for how English can enhance their lives. I never heard a compelling reason why I should learn a foreign language in high school. Never. I can go to college. I don't really want to go to college. I never heard a compelling reason. And so I think most people feel that way. I've got to take Spanish. I've got to take French. I have to do it. There are people who hold on to what they've learned. There are people who get it. But the majority of people who study a foreign language don't hold on to it because we don't have a vision for it, how we can use it in our lives. Most people do in other parts of the world. And so that's vision. But then you can't just have vision if you're going to change. Many of us like the idea of change. We're like, man, if I could drop 50 pounds, or if I could eat better, or if I could stop watching that stuff on the internet, or if I could stop doing this, X, Y, or Z, that would be awesome. And we love the idea of being different. But we stop with vision. But there's another step beyond vision, Dallas Willard says, and I agree with him, and that's intention. It can't just be wishful thinking. It's got to be intention. You have to intend to lean in to the vision that you have. He says this, Projects of personal transformation rarely, if ever, succeed by accident, drift, or imposition. I've not changed in my life out of accident. Whoops, I eat so much better now. I didn't have three bowls of ice cream with magic shell every night on vacation. How did that happen? Projects of change never never happen through drift, where just over time you just drift towards what's whole and healthy. Why? Because we live in a world that stimulates us and is decadent. And if you're going to follow health and pursue health and wholeness, you've got to be able to see through health and wholeness underneath health and wholeness. Because on the outside of health and wholeness, it looks hard and unattractive. Why not commit adultery in my heart? It's fun to look at girls and think about them. But if you get underneath that and begin to think about wholeness and what it is, the gift that you can give your spouse, the gift that you can give your own heart, You've got to look, you've got to look for the beauty when it comes to wholeness. You don't just drift that way. And I've never been made to change, never been made to change. Never forget the time I brought home a bad report card in fourth grade, and my dad flipped. I studied like a crazy man all night. He was standing over me the whole time. You would have thought I had to defend a PhD dissertation the next day. I mean, and the next week at school, I killed it. I made A's on every test. I was like, man, I know this stuff. But he wasn't standing over me every single day. So two weeks later, I'm bringing home bad grades again. We don't drift to change. Change doesn't happen out of imposition. Somebody's standing over us. Willard says effective action has to involve order, subordination and progression developing from inside of the personality. Now, if there's ever anything that sounded unspiritual, it's that, isn't it? Because if I'm going to change, I want a preacher to pray for me, wave his magic wand over my head, make something happen in my life. That's, what I, that's, how, that's how I view change. I mean, that's the culture we've all grown up in. Regardless of, of your... Um, Whatever spiritual background, whatever tribe you're from, denominationally, whatever background you're from, we all have the assumption, we share the assumption that if we follow Jesus and are saved, then it'll, it should just happen in my life. And yet, when you look at the Bible, it doesn't seem to teach that. It doesn't teach that if you get saved, it all just happens. So what's up with that? How is it spiritual then? Why do I need Jesus if I've got to work? And Dalit Swillard's not saying here, work real hard, clench your jaw, grit your teeth, clench your fists, white knuckle it until you get to change. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that change that happens, happens through process, focus. Yes, there's effort. Effort is not the opposite of grace. Earning is, Dallas Willard also said that. We're not talking about earning God's love. We're not talking about working so that we will be saved. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus, period, period. But as Ron said a couple of weeks ago, you can have faith and get to heaven really raggedy. We don't want you to get there raggedy. We want you to experience transformation in your life. And so we got to rethink about what it means to be spiritual. You see, spiritual, what is spirit in our lives? And I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about our spirits. You can put our spirit under one heading, the hidden world of us. That's what our spirit is. Your spirit is your hidden world. It is made up of your mind. Your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your will. That is your spirit. That's what needs to be transformed. Your hidden world needs to be transformed. And so make no mistake. If we are going to change, you are going to have to get below steps one, two, and three and get this. Your hidden world needs to be saturated with the presence of Jesus. If your hidden world is not saturated with the presence of Jesus, you are going to get cynical and more cynical and more cynical as the years go on and as you sit in these church services. Because you're going to find yourself leaving every week Maybe it was a good word, maybe it was entertaining, maybe it was fun, maybe it was interesting, maybe it was stimulating, maybe you learned interesting things about the Bible, but you're going to know deep down, this isn't changing in me. My hidden world is the same as it was years ago. We want your hidden world to be transformed by the glory of Jesus. See, this is the vision I have now for a prayer life. For me, prayer isn't, i got to pray today because the scripture say I need to pray. I've come to a place in my life where I've got nothing in my hands and I know it. I've got, no, got nothing. I'm not saying this out of piety, my friends. I really believe this. I have nothing. I'm not saying I've got the most amazing prayer life you've ever seen. Some of you could run circles around me. But I have come to a place in my life where I have nothing in my hands and I need Jesus. That compels my prayer life. I need him. I need him. I've got to have him in my life. I can't do it without him. I'm a bad dad without Jesus. I'm a bad pastor without Jesus. I'm a crappy husband without Jesus. I'm all that without Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. You've got to believe that underneath it all. Which is why Willard says that it begins, it develops from inside the personality. So this is what I mean when I talk about spiritual growth. When the hidden world is saturated with Jesus. But how? And this is where the M comes in. Means. Means. It's one thing to have a vision, a glorious vision for what life could be like if you had this virtue or this new heart. It's another thing to have intention. I'm going to pursue this. But you've got to have means. How do I do that? Let's go back to learning a foreign language. If you were learning a foreign language, you would first begin probably with classes or tutoring of some sort. And what everybody does who's serious about learning a language is they get these little cards and they start writing vocabulary words on them. The English on the front and whatever it is you're learning on the back. And they walk around studying those cards. You can see dudes in seminary with big old rings with cards of all these Greek vocabulary words walking around. Walking around, just studying those jokers. You get flashcards. You read books. You hang out with people who have your same interest in that language. And you rehearse and practice together. You might even invest some money in going on a study trip where you live abroad for a summer in France if you're going to learn French. Spain or Mexico if you're going to learn Spanish. I know there are other countries that speak those languages, I'm just saying. Um, But you do those things. But underneath all of that, you are practicing, practicing, practicing. Oh, but that sounds so unspiritual. You see, the practice of Christianity is every day taking my hidden life and holding it up to Jesus. It's not just doing things. It's holding it up to Jesus. I wish I could take the next segment, and just talk about what that looks like. But you're going to have to just keep on coming. And not because I'm trying to ration truth out to you to keep you coming on Sundays for my ego, but because this is a lifetime of learning. This is a lifetime of learning. And so you've got vision, you've got intention, and then you've got means. Now, I want to go back... To vision and talk about that for a moment. Because in Philippians 4 8, I believe that Paul is telling us, have a vision for what your life could look like in Jesus. And he says these words Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, the first time I read, read that, and, and honestly, Almost every time I've ever read that, until recently, I've not really known what to do there. Purity. Purity, 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 purity. Excellence. Excellence, excellence, excellence. What else does he say? Think about what's true. True, true. Jesus is true. Jesus is true. God's word is true. True, 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 true. true. I feel like I'm getting ready to have a baby. Sorry. Um, <laughs> We're being called, I believe, to cultivate a vision for these things. And I want to be very clear about something here. He doesn't tell us what those things are that are lovely, that are pure, that are honorable, that are just. Why? Because that's up to us. We've got to figure out what's pure, what's lovely what's honorable, what's just, what's all that stuff. Those are all amplifiers that describe concrete behaviors and ideas. Justice, truth, loveliness, all those things are adjectives or amplifiers that describe something concrete. They are abstracts that help amplify something that's real and that you can taste and see and smell in your life as you pursue those things. Now, let's go to, for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. Ron preached on this a few weeks ago. I think it's really imperative that you hear that talk if you've not yet. It's called A Body for God. It was two weeks ago. Um... Why doesn't he give us concrete ideas of what to think about? I think partly because he's giving a closing to his letter (laughs) in Philippians. He's not going to preach another sermon, maybe. But also because we're not all cookie-cutter people. You may struggle with purity in a way that I don't. I may struggle with with truth and justice in a way that you don't. So we've got to hold our hearts up to the scriptures and let the scriptures be a mirror to what is broken inside of us. Your brokenness is different from mine. We're all broken. But your complexities and your uniqueness is different from my complexities and my uniqueness. And so he's calling us, he leaves us all with the sense of a lack of resolve. And man, American Christians hate that. Give me resolve. Tell me how the story ends and it better be happy. (laughs) And I read so many texts in scripture, especially the Psalms, that end with no resolve. It's just a naked trust that God God's going to somehow show up. I don't know how. I don't know when, but He is. And I love it that right. We're being left in a position where we got to do some work ourselves because I'm tired of doing it for everybody else. You need to do it too. We need to work together on our souls, on our spirit, our hidden life. Now I'm going to read Second uh, Peter one, three through seven. Then we're going to bring this bird in for a landing, okay? It says this. His, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What a beautiful promise. Now, whether you feel that or not, it's true about you. If you are a follower of Jesus, no matter how jacked up you are, you might have four flat tires, no gas. A busted carburetor, if you believe in Jesus, this is true about you. He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted us, to us, his precious and very great promises. So that through them, so that through what? What's, what is about, what are the adjectives that describe those promises? What did he say about those? They are precious and not just great, very great, very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. He's given us divine power to partake of. What does it mean to partake? To be a part of. That's good. What else? What? Assimilate. Assimilate. Wow, that's a good one. His divine power. He's given us the divine power to assimilate into our lives the divine nature. I can hand you this bottle of water. If you don't take the top off and drink from it you got a bottle of water in your hand and you will still die of thirst if you don't drink of it. Every one of you has a bottle of water in your hand if you follow Jesus. Are you going to unscrew that top and start drinking? Everybody wants the preacher to do it for them. Come here. Come here. Come here. Don't tell the landlord I did that. Yes. That's what we want the preachers to do. That's not my job. My job is not to nourish you. It's to teach you how to nourish yourself. That's my job. So, for this very... so, So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Man, there is so much in this. Sinful desire in my life, that's my problem. I ain't the devil. It's sinful desire that's in my life. That's the source of my brokenness and my pain and my suffering, all that junk in my life. That stuff's got to be crushed. My hidden life needs to be saturated with Jesus. For this very reason, here's what he says that you do about it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. He did not say for this very reason, go get prayed for at the altar. I'm not against that. I love praying for people. I really do. But that's supplemental. If that's your only game plan, you're never going to realize this in your life. And so he says, "To your faith, add these things." I loved how Ron described that a few weeks ago. He said, "Imagine your your imagine faith being a house, and all those virtues, all those virtues are or is, are furniture." I'm sorry, I had my sister sitting in the front row and speaking to me. She, Get out of my head. Uh, she's on the beach. Um, so uh, imagine your house is faith, and in that house is all those things. That he lists here. Virtue. Virtue. Imagine virtue being like a couch. Knowledge. Refrigerator. Self-control. The microwave. That's probably not a good idea. That's not, that doesn't really, anyway. You know what I mean. Steadfastness. See that as, you know, um, the basketball goal. All these things. See these things as furniture in the house of your faith. See them that way. You've got to see them that way. Okay, now what? How do you do all that stuff? How do you add virtue to faith? I want to quickly just run through this inventory of virtues really quick, because all these are virtues. Just really quickly. He says, To your faith, add virtue. This is what we have to do as followers of Jesus. We have to add virtue to our faith. Y'all with me? You sure? Come on, stay with me now. Think with me. I'm not done yet. Stay with me. All right. Virtue. It's a skill demonstrating excellence. It's becoming the best we can possibly be. So here's how I want you to see virtue. You've got your house, which is faith. It's who you are. Virtue are your core practices. It's the pursuit of growth and excellence in whatever areas of your life lack those things. So, you're moving into the house, and I want you to imagine virtue being the dolly. Boom, put the fridge over there, bring it back to the moving truck. You get out the couch, you can take the couch, and you boom, and you put the couch over there. That's what virtue is it's practice, it's pursuit, it's underneath all the virtues that you want to put on. And then he says, to your virtue, add knowledge. Knowledge. Find a preacher. I don't need to know theology. That's crazy. We all should be growing in our knowledge of the Scriptures. And I know there are people who say, well, it's, not, it's, like, a, it's like an experiential knowledge. It's knowing Jesus. I'm like, yeah, but you can't know Jesus without the Scriptures. Because people who try to know Jesus without the Scriptures believe crazy things. So we need Scriptures. We need the Bible. We need the Bible. So we get the Scriptures. That's our foundation. People tell me all the time, I just can't hear God. It's okay. God has spoken. Read Matthew. Read Jude. Read First and Second John. Read the Revelation. Read Acts. If you have trouble hearing God, read the Bible. It's okay. You don't have to feel shame and guilt because you don't hear a still small voice in your mind all the time. Read the Bible. Grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. Grow in that. Grow in that. Then he says, to your knowledge, add self-control, restraint. Now notice that underneath restraint, you've got to have some stuff going on. You've got to be a person of faith fundamentally. You've got to have that dolly of virtue ready. You've got to have a plan, processes, so that you can grow. And the first thing you move into your house is what? Knowledge. Grow in God's Word. So faith, virtue, knowledge, underneath all that stuff. You aren't going to have self-control without faith, virtue, uh, a means of excellence and growth, and knowledge. You are not going to have self-control without that. Some of us in this room pray. I've done the same thing. We've prayed our whole lives, God, please give me self-control. Please give me self-control. I'm going to think about it like Paul says, self-control, 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 self-control. And then I walk out the door and I cuss somebody out. (laughs) I did that just last week. I'm kidding. Uh, So, You can't have self-control unless you fundamentally are living in a house of faith. You know Jesus. And in that house, you've got a means, a plan to grow in Jesus. That's virtue. And then along with virtue, part of that plan is you've got to be knowing God's word. Be in God's word. Eat God's word. Partake of God's word. You've got to do that. And to self-control, then comes some other stuff that we all feel guilty about. Self-control, steadfastness, which is perseverance, godliness. Some of us are trying to start, go from faith to godliness. And we've got no virtues established in our lives. We've got no plans. We've got no accountability. We've got no means. We're mad because we don't know Arabic. And I've never taken an Arabic class. I don't know anybody who speaks Arabic. And I'm like, Dad dadgummit, I feel so bad about myself. I don't know Arabic. I'm so stupid. That, that's dumb to say that. You've got to go to class. You've got to get some flashcards together. You've got to take notes. You've got to study. You've got to listen to audio stuff. You've got to go on a study trip. You've got to give yourself to that. So a lot of us feel guilty because we're not godly, but we've not started with square one yet. So godliness. What is godliness? It's being more and more godlike in our behavior. More and more godlike. It's remembering what God put us here for. What did God put us here for? To cultivate the earth, to bring about human flourishing for the glory of God. That's godliness. Don't just think of godliness as Bible reading, those are means. I want to be careful there because the scriptures are also the revelation of Jesus. And so I don't, it's not just like a, a rule book, the Bible's not the instruction manual, it's more than that. But don't your vision has got to be something more than Man, I want to study flashcards That is going to be awesome One day I'm going to be amazing at flashcards I'm going to listen to more audio, audio teachings on French Than you can shake a stick at And that's going to be amazing I feel so edified and built up By all the French lessons I've listened to Hallelujah, praise the Lord Can you speak French? Nah, no, don't really It's not really my thing I don't want to speak French I just want to study French. I like, the, I, like the, I like the cadence of the French sound. I like that I've got to do my lips like this when I talk French. <laughs> it's a beautiful language. I ain't talking it though. <laughs> Why would I talk French when the pastor can? <laughs> Godliness. And then I love what he does here. He, does, he puts brotherly affection and love in two different categories. I love that. Because before I experience deep covenantal love with you, uh, let me say it this way. The path to deep covenantal love with one another is to know one another and to be together. And it's to give big bear hugs. I know some of you guys get weirded out by that, but it's just, he says show brotherly affection. So like, come here, Chris. Chris, wake up. Come here. come here. Give me a hug. Oh, I love you, man. Love you. Too. Love you. I was tempted to kiss you, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, you're just you're so good looking. So, man, brotherly affection. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe it's more like this, Kenny. Come here. Maybe it's more like this. Like, maybe it's like that. Love you, man. Love you. Love you, man. Okay. we got to give the gift of affection to one another. You know what softens my heart towards people when I'm mad at them? It's not just thinking better about them. It's not feeling guilty about my my thoughts and going to prayer. and Jesus, please take away my thoughts about Josh Samuels. Please. (laughs) It's going and being with him and getting in his presence and looking at his eyes and seeing his heart, spending time together. It's brotherly affection brotherly affection and that un- that underlies love love now all that sounds great and if i stopped right now i wouldn't be teaching you anything showing you anything because here's what you have to do with all of that those are concrete examples of virtues that we need to be growing in in our lives brotherly affection, love, all those things. How do we do that? And this is where I think we go back to Philippians chapter 4. We've got to learn to vision cast for our soul. Cast vision for your soul. Most of us, what motivates a desire for change inside of us is guilt and shame. I'm not this and I should be. Rather than that being your motivator, why can't your motivator be something like, wow, brotherly affection is really beautiful? I'm going to practice that. I'm going to practice that. Let me give an example. Let me give you an example because here's what I think you need to first, you need to you need to locate first, I need to say this first. First, you've got to locate your impairments. You need to read over that list and say, okay, what is it that I'm terrible at? If you've not read your Bible in three weeks, there's a big problem. Not because you're gonna go to hell if you don't read your Bible. That's not that's the message that so many Southern preachers have said. That's not what I'm saying here today. You're not justified by Bible reading. You're justified by faith in Jesus. But if you're not in the scriptures, you are not giving God the raw materials to invade your private world and change you. And so maybe you need to hold yourself up to these virtues and go, huh, what is it that I'm terrible at? What are my impairments? I've been saved for 30 years. And I still won't look at somebody and say, man, I really love you. Man, I care about you. Give me a hug, man. Godliness is as far from me today as it was when I first came to Jesus. Why is that? And I'm not saying these things to condemn anyone here. I want to give you hope that you don't have to stay where you are right now. But you're going to have to hold your life up to this list, this inventory, and go, okay, what doesn't match? That's the first thing you've got to do. So write that down if you're taking notes. The first thing I do is locate my impairments. How does my life contradict these virtues? I'm almost done. I know I said that 15 minutes ago, or maybe 20, but I'm getting there. This is more important than going to the movies. Okay. Here's the second. Now, remember, in, in the Scriptures... When Jesus made himself known, he said this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he intersected with our impairments first. Repent, change, you're broken, you're jacked up. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent, you're broken, there is a thing that you can have that will change you, the kingdom of God. It's all over the New Testament. Not only did Jesus preach this, But John the Baptist preached this, and Peter preached this in Acts chapter 2. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent. So first, got to locate your impairments. Here's the second and last step. Be subversive. Imagine a new story for your life. Imagine a new story. What would it look like for you to have virtue in your life? An architecture of discipline, spiritual strategy, scriptural study, daily prayer, ongoing relationship and community with other brothers and sisters in the body of Jesus. What would it look like for you to build that architecture and commit yourself to it? What would it look like? What would it look like to really know God rather than, I just don't hear God's voice enough, Maybe something like this. I just want to be close to Jesus. I want to be used by Jesus. I want to find myself in situations when I'm, when I'm at the store, when I'm driving around, when I'm having coffee with somebody, when I'm at work, and I just, it's as though Jesus is just speaking through me. I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to be the kind of person who really knows God's word. So I'm not going to get mad that I don't know anything about God's word today. I'm going to commit myself to taking daily steps. And every day I'm going to take 15 minutes and just really read his word. Not knock it out for the day because to follow my reading plan. But to really know God's word, to think about it, to savor it. And then I might journal for a few minutes afterwards. And I'm just going to keep on going, believing that a lifetime of doing that will change me. I want to be a person of self-control what would it look like to no longer be possessed by impulse? What would it be like to not yell at my kids anymore? But when they come to me and they have questions or thoughts or whatever, that I'm, I'm patient with them. And I stop what I'm doing. I put the TV on mute. I put my book down. Whatever I'm doing, and I give them my full attention. And I'm emotionally present with my children. What would it look like? Oh, man. Oh, man. I bet my kids wouldn't go crazy when they're 15 if I did that. That would be awesome. I bet when they're 15 or 16, maybe, maybe. It's not guaranteed, but maybe, because they've got wills too. But maybe when they're 15 and 16, we'll have a really good relationship and we'll, we'll be close. We'll want to be together. For what it looked like to envision self-control. What would it look like to have steadfastness in my life that rather than follow the impulse of constantly eating and drinking and gratifying myself, to be steadfast and disciplined? I'd probably drop some weight. My health would grow. What if I was steadfast in the gym? What if I was steadfast in the scriptures? What if I was steadfast in my friendships, and that brother or that sister that's in my life, maybe in my community group, that makes me crazy. Rather than avoiding them every time we're around each other, I take that person out for a cup of coffee and I just begin to know their heart. And if I don't get a word in edgewise, that's okay. Because I'm a bigger idiot with God. And He loves me. And He wants to be with me. And He pursues me. Maybe there's some humility that we can learn along the way. What would godliness look like in my life? Rather than being enslaved to pornography and incessant profanity and evil thinking and always putting myself first and think, scheming of ways that I can get more money and more stuff and have more things and Whatever. Scheming for ways to pump up my ego and cause people to respect me and love me and adore me and honor me more. What if I just took, what if I took on Jesus' posture and took on a posture of humility? What if I worked against the pride and the ego in my life? What What would my wife think about me if I was that kind of person? What would my friends think? Because I've always wanted really good friends and loyal friends, but I don't have any because like people hang out. And what if I took on the posture of growing in godliness? Not like religious, not religious shaming of people and and holy rolling, you know, all that stuff. All All the cartoons that are in your mind. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about being a reliable friend. A person who says that when you do something, you do it. A person who's committed to his or her local church. A person who gives himself to friendship and to marriage and to to raising your kids well. A person who realizes that binging on television all the time is harmful and toxic for my soul. And I need to read a good book. I need to spend more time with people and have eye-to-eye, face-to-face conversation. What would it look like to pursue a life of godliness? What would it look like to take aside that person that I really respect, who sits three rows away from me, who I notice every single week when he prays with his family? or when she lifts her hands and just worships God so sincerely, what would it be like for me just to approach them and say, hey, can I spend a little time with you? I know that's weird, but the worst thing that can happen is the person says no. One of my dearest friends to this day is a person who, when I blew him off, he said, hey, I want to spend time with you and get to know you. And we're friends today because of him. I had nothing to do with it. What would that look like? What would it look like to begin to quit making excuses for not being a hugger? You're not going to get a disease by hugging somebody. (laughs) What would it look like just to put your arm around somebody? Or even more than that, maybe that will take you five or ten decades to get there. But what if you began making a phone call and saying, Hey, I was just thinking about you, man. Are you doing okay? I'm concerned for you. Brotherly affection. Well, what would it look like if in your life sarcasm went way down and sincerity went way up? I can tell you what it will look like. People will think you're weird at first. Like, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? And over time, you know what will happen? They're going to fall in love with that gentle, steadfast person that God has put in their life. And they're going to want to open their hearts to you and not be like this because you might say something sarcastic that will shut them down. What would it it look like to experience real, steadfast, brotherly affection? I'll tell you what it will look like. It will make us a church that looks like love. We will love one another well. We will endure with one another. We will care for one another. But we are not going to drift there. We'll be a crappy church or a great church if you and I own this. We've got to own this. This isn't up to me. This isn't up to the staff to make this happen. All we do is create context so that we can practice what we're learning. Here's the context. We've got community groups, context. A person asked me this week, how can we begin to practice this as community groups? And my response is simple. Practice that as a community group. <laughs> you know what you could do? Get together and write vision stories together. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're thinking, man, I have absolutely no self-control. And I can't even think of a vision for what self-control looks like. Then pull somebody aside. Hey, Ray, come here. Can we get together, dude? I'm listening to Chris preach on Sunday. I'm looking at, like, self-control, and I feel really bad about myself because I know I can't push push away a piece of apple pie if my life depended on it. I have no self-control. I don't know how to stop fantasizing over the opposite sex, the same sex. I don't know how to stop all this sin in my life. Can you help me develop a vision for what it looks like for self-control? There are people that in this church that if you're connected, you can find people like that. If you can't, I can pair you up with somebody. I don't expect many of you to take me up on that because I know that's horrifyingly scary. But I can pair you up with somebody that will connect with you and be with you. I can And that's why I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's coincidence or just like spiritual fodder that Paul throws in when he says, What you have learned, in verse 9, and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What did he say? He didn't say what you heard me preach. Practice these things. He said what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What does that say? Proximity and intimacy. It's not about going to class. It's about being connected to the teacher. It's tutoring. It's one-on-one. This is why we have community groups at our church. We badly want you to change. This series is not over. We're just getting started. It's taken on a life of its own. Tons of you have said, man, I can't believe this. I don't know if you're just saying that to me. I don't think you are, but I can't believe how good this is. Every week I'm learning things and thinking of things that I've never heard or thought of before. So here's my question. I've already blown out the time today, so oh well. But um, here's the question. What's the first thing you're going to do now? Write it down. Come on, write it down. Take out your phone, get out the notes app, write down that I'm going to do something. Don't write the words, I'm going to do something. Write, write down. Step one is what? What? Look at your impairments. Hold your life up to that inventory in Second Peter chapter 1. What's step number two? Come up with a contrary vision. Why do you need to do that? Because the vision that you have is killing you. You keep telling yourself, I have to go look on the internet and binge for a while. You tell yourself that because you think that's beautiful. And when you're done, you walk away feeling defeated and dead. Because it's not good for you. What if you had a vision for something else better than that? Not just overcoming porn. Create a vision for something beautiful, for something magnificent. Jesus, help us, Lord. We need you. We can't do this without you. It is our deepest desire that we grow in you and honor you. And I pray, Jesus, for every heart in this room, every numb heart, every strong heart, every joyful heart, every dead heart. Jesus, Jesus, help us to see our impairments and our sin And help us, oh God, to change. Give us a vision for what's beautiful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go, I want to say one thing. If you find that you're coming to know Jesus and really depend on Him, please let us know that. If you're becoming a Christian, a real Christian, for the first time, let us know. You can send us an email Info at renewalmemphis.com, where you can go back to the information to the welcome center and sign up for baptisms. But please, my friends, please let us know. Let us know. We're having a baptismal service the first Sunday in July. If you're coming to know Jesus, we're going to use that baptistry back there. If you're coming to know Jesus and you want to do that, make it known publicly and be immersed in the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus, shoot us an email or go to the Welcome Center and sign up. My dear friends, I pray this week would be a life, a week filled with joy. I pray that if you're sad, that you would be drawn to Jesus in your sadness. I pray that if you have bad news this week, that you would find strength in him. And I pray more than anything else that you would see the beauty of Jesus' face. In his scriptures, in the church, in the spirit, as he makes himself known to you. Go in peace, my good friends. Take care.